It's good to be gathered with you today, this Sunday, this Lord's Day. And as already mentioned, uh, some are here today that we haven't seen since in person uh, since March uh, 2020. So it is so good to have you here today if you're in that category. And uh, if you are here last week, it's good to see you too. Um, it, it's, uh, it's just good to be together and worshiping God's people. It is Memorial Day weekend and as we were just singing and, and thinking of remembering those who've, uh, who've given their lives in, in service to our country, I was thinking of our, our row of, of, uh, of veterans back here that's, uh, that's shrunk over the years as they have gone to be with the Lord. And uh, many of you here who've been a part of this church family for a long time uh, know Fred Moore, who served our country in World War II in the back, and he used to have several, uh, several uh, comrades, several uh, fellow men who served in World War II and in, 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 uh, also in uh, Korea, and they have gone to be with the Lord. And I was just thinking, it is, it is good to live, and the scriptures tell us to die is gain. And I was just thinking of those men who are, who are with the Lord and who served us. But Fred, it's really good to have you with us. Will you raise your hand, Fred? Just everybody say hi to Fred. It's good to have Fred with us, and it has been good for many, many years to have his uh, colleagues with us as well. Let's uh, shift our attention to uh, the Word of God. I want to begin today, before we get to our unit of Scripture in Romans Chapter 6, hopefully you have your devices open or your Bibles open to Romans 6.15. We're going to get there in just a moment, but I want to start in Matthew 18. Uh, Peter came to Jesus and asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother when he sins against me? How many times should I forgive my brother when he sins against me? Up to seven times? And many of you are maybe familiar with the context in which this question was asked. The context of first century Jewish life was that you basically had three times to forgive your brother, your sister, your fellow believer who has sinned against you. And then after that third time, you know, you, 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 were, you were good. You, you, you've done your, your work. And, and so Peter, recognizing that Jesus has a far higher standard of righteousness than the scribes and the Pharisees and the people that, that they have been listening to preach. Jesus has a very different standard. Peter, Peter gets that. And so he's, he's doubled it and added one, and is it, is it seven times? And many of you know Jesus' response. His response, I tell you, not seven times, but 77 times, or 70 times seven, or it's translated a variety of ways. The point is that there is no limit. The point is we don't count the number of times. There is no limit to the number of times that you and I as Christ followers forgive someone else who sinned against us directly against us or maybe by a sin of omission have, have sinned against us by abandoning us or something. There, there is no limit to the number of times. Why is that? The reason that has always been the case was a misunderstanding that there was a limit. The reason is how many times has the Lord Jesus forgiven you, forgiven me? 
Imagine if he went to the cross with a number in mind for your life or my life. And the efficacy of what he did at the cross only went to a certain number. That is not how he went to the cross. He forgives us regardless of our cycle of sin and struggle and repentance and renewal and then sin and struggle and repentance and renewal and and, and going over and over, some of us more than 77 times. The good news of the gospel is that we are forgiven. And because of that, because of that gospel, because of the character of the forgiveness of God, that's how we are to live as, as Christ followers, as he has forgiven us, so we go about life forgiving one another. This forgiveness is, is deep, and it's, it's real, and it has no limit. We see this also in the heart of God in the parable of the prodigal son, what is known as the parable of the prodigal son. You're, you're familiar with the story. The, the, uh, the younger son, you know, essentially spits in his dad's face, his dad gives him the inheritance. He takes off. He parties. He, he, he lives the life he thinks he should be living, where he's going to find happiness. Instead, he finds misery. And that father in the story, representing God the Father, shows, although the word forgiveness isn't in there, it shows not only the love of God the Father, but his forgiveness. So look at it briefly. Matthew 18. But while he was still, it's not Matthew 18, it's in Luke. I made an error there. But but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion. This son that has essentially spit in his face, he doesn't wait for him. You have this image of of the father getting up off the porch and just running uh, across the deck, across the field, filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, he throws his arms around him, and he kisses him. Father says to his servants, quick, bring bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. You're familiar with the story. I'm just reminding you of the image, not only of the love of God represented by the father in the story, but the forgiveness of God represented by the father in this parable. This forgiveness is is massive. His mercy is, is massive. And so I've looked at these, we've looked at these couple of passages to introduce our text for today. Let's turn our eyes to verse 15 of Romans 6. Let me read it to you, and I'll explain why I just read those passages and reminded you of these things. Most of you are very familiar with them. So in verse 15 of Romans 6, Paul writes, What then? Shall we sin because we are not under law but under grace? We're under grace. We're not under a system where there's a limit on the number of times that you sin in which you no longer get forgiveness. We're not in a system where you have to follow a certain number of laws and once you follow them to a certain level, you get forgiveness. We're under grace. And so there can be a misunderstanding about how as Christ followers we respond to grace. And that's what Paul is addressing. Shall we just sin because we're not under the law, but but we're under this grace? We're going to receive this kind of forgiveness from God? For those of you that were here last week are going, hey, isn't this last week's sermon? Isn't this what we talked about? Some of you are thinking that. I was thinking that too as I started preparing the sermon. Jump your eyes back up to chapter 6, verse 1. Those of you that weren't here last week, listen to what it says. What shall we say then? 
Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? Almost the same thing in 6.1. The first half of Romans 6 is just restated in different terms, in different ways, in the second half of Romans 6. This wasn't an accident. This is the Holy Spirit wanting to emphasize something. Emphasizing both the depth of God's forgiveness and yet also in, in that we live in this realm of grace. But by no means do we just go on sinning. You need to get this. That's why he's repeated basically the same thing in different words, at different, slightly different emphasis in the first half of Romans 6 and the second half of Romans 6. So the problem is that many may misunderstand forgiveness. And that's what he's getting at at verse 15. Let me read it again. What then? Shall we sin because we are not under law but under grace? By no means. Absolutely not. That is not the orientation. That is not the way to go. The problem here is that some may misunderstand forgiveness. They misunderstand this realm of grace. And Paul is making it clear how important it is to follow God closely and to submit to his lordship as our master. That is where joy and satisfaction is going to be found, not with an abuse of grace and the forgiveness of God. So the problem here in the second half of Romans 6 is the same problem in the first half of Romans 6. Some may misunderstand forgiveness. So that's verse 15. Let's uh, turn our eyes to verse 16 and get into the gist of how he's emphasizing the same theme in a different way, beginning in verse 16. Don't you know... That when you offer yourselves to someone to obey him as slaves, you are slaves to the one whom you obey. Don't you know that? He's saying this to first century Romans, and we'll talk about the the context of, of slavery in just a moment. But he's saying, don't you get that? And then he gets to the main point of the passage. Whether you are slaves to sin, which leads to death, or to obedience, which leads to righteousness. So that second half of verse 16 is the main emphasis of these couple of paragraphs, this latter half of Romans 6. Are you going to be a slave to sin, sin being personified as this great power? Are you going to be a slave to that great power, sin? Not your specific sins, but this power of sin. Or are you going to be a slave to righteousness? And then later in the chapter, in, in this latter half of the chapter, he changes it from righteousness to slaves to God. If you look all the way at verse 22, if you look, um, yeah, verse 22 is one of them. So slaves to righteousness, also meaning a slave to God. These are the two choices. Are you going to be a slave to sin or a slave to God? Now, this is hard for us in a whole variety of reasons. Robert mentioned this is a difficult passage. And One of the reasons this is difficult is just this whole idea of using the metaphor of slavery and us being slaves to God. So we need to do a little bit of background here. So people in the ancient world would often sell themselves into slavery as a way of avoiding financial disaster. And that is basically what's being referred to at the very beginning of verse 16. This is something they were very familiar with. Don't you know? That when you offer someone, offer yourselves to someone to obey him as slaves, so we can kind of expand what he's saying here, that they didn't have bankruptcy back then. 
They didn't have uh, protection through court. So you had a bunch of debts, and you had no way to pay them off. You sold yourself into slavery to get out of that debt. This was a common thing in their culture and society. And so he's bringing this up, and he's saying, don't you know this? That you obey them, obey whoever you sell yourself to as slaves? You do. Of course you know that. You are slaves to the one whom you obey. So one of, this, one of the reasons this chapter is difficult for us is slavery in the ancient world is very different than slavery in our country. It seems with everything that's going on, it's, it's, it's worth mentioning some of these differences. Everything that's going on in our co- country and culture today. And we ought not to run away from the truth of the evil and the wickedness of slavery in our country from the 1600s until the Emancipation Proclamation. That slavery in our country is very, very different. Although slavery is not a good thing in the first century either, but it was very, very different, massively different. And we ought to bring that into focus. And we need to do that to not just be upset. For example, why is Paul using this metaphor of slavery to God in a positive way? He does. He uses it in a positive way. Emphasizing our submission to him as a master. But as Christ followers, we know he is a good master. He is the kind of master who doesn't whip you, but runs across the deck, runs across the field to embrace you when you come home. So he's using this imagery that even in the first century was was challenging, but in in our culture, in, in our setting, is even more challenging to understand. So a couple more things about background. So one of of the most classic works on uh, background and slavery in the first century, it's called The First Urban Christians. The author writes this, the most fundamental change of status for a person of the lower classes was that from slavery to freedom or vice versa. They were familiar with that transition. This does not mean that all free persons were better off than all slaves. Far from it. Wanting us to understand what it was like in the first century slavery. There were slaves who owned slaves in the first century who manipulated large sums of money in what were, in effect, but not legally, their own businesses, who practiced highly skilled professions, and there were free laborers who starved. So this was a a large percentage of the population that was enslaved. This is the metaphor that Paul is using. It wasn't race-based. It wasn't... uh, It wasn't something that, that involves white supremacy or... Middle Eastern supremacy or Jewish supremacy or anything like that. It was a very different system, and yet he's using this metaphor for us to see there's basically two ways to live, to be a slave to sin or to be a slave to God. Now, he seems to know that this is difficult, even in the, con- in the context of the first century, to use this imagery. Look at verse 19 with me. In my translation, it says, I put this in human terms because you are weak in your natural selves. (laughs) I think we should laugh there a little bit. What did yours say, Robert? What's that? Human limitations. Anybody feeling like they've got limitations in their brain and in their mind and in their soul? We have them. And so to paraphrase what Paul's saying in verse 19, he's saying, hey, I know it's hard for you guys to get what I'm trying to say. But I'm, I'm, I'm using this metaphor to try to help you. This metaphor of, of slavery, of, of slaves. Uh, the word is used eight times in this, uh, 
this section, the verb and the noun, uh, doulos. So, the problem is that some may misunderstand forgiveness. The solution here is to see that freedom, freedom, what the world thinks of as freedom, what the prodigal son, the younger son who spits in his dad's face and takes off and goes partying, what that kind of freedom actually is, is slavery to sin. That's what this unit of scripture is wanting to open our eyes to. It's not using politically correct language, even in the first century. And Paul isn't apologizing for that. He's just saying, I'm trying to help you out so that you can understand what's going on. Those who are seeking freedom in that worldly sense are actually enslaved to sin. You don't want to live that way. There is a better, more joyful way to live that leads to to happiness and peace in this life and in the next life, eternity with God. Don't live as a slave to sin, but live as a slave to God who loves you and wants to wrap his arms around you. Us reading this passage this week and meditating on this passage this week, I thought of two different people. One whom I know personally who has made a shift near the end of his life, and and one that I don't, that I read about him weeks ago. I'm going to tell you about both of them. First, the man that I know. Now, I didn't use the language as I talked with this man near the end of his life. He recently went paralyzed from the waist down. And he called the church here. I had no idea who he was. He's in a rehab facility right near here. I go over to visit with him, and he is now near the end of life, and he can't move beneath his waist. Many, many decades ago, way back here, he was a follower of Christ, and he, knew the, and he knows the scriptures, and he knows the gospel. But as he lived life, although I didn't use this language, the way he was describing his life to me, He was a slave to sin. He wouldn't have described it that way. His wife wouldn't have described it that way. They would have described him as a successful businessman who ended up leaving Auburn and going around the world and making a lot of money. But now that he is looking at death in the face, he is realizing he did not do that under the master of the universe. He didn't do that his whole life has been lived as he looks on it right now, as I just met with him a few days ago, his whole life is looked at with massive regret. Had we opened this passage, we probably would have used this language that's really hard for us to use to describe. He's basically been a slave to sin. So what am I to do there? I'm there to remind him about how merciful and gracious and compassionate our God is. And it's not too late for you to start serving him right now. And to turn your heart toward him and to do the things that you need to do with whatever time you have left. To reconcile with others and to to make things right. Oh, and if you could see the look on his face and the relief of of hearing the truth of the gospel and the compassion and forgiveness of our God. That was my duty in that little hospital room, uh, rehab room, whatever you call it, the room that he was in. He came to a realization 
without using the language of Romans 6, that he had been a slave to sin pretty much his whole life. And he regretted it. It wasn't some egregious kind of sin. It was, it was something that looked really good, would have described him as successful. But it left him empty. This is what Paul is trying to open our eyes to and open the readers of the first century's eyes to that you are going to be a slave to something. What are you a slave to? Who are you a slave to? And he's drawn the two broadest categories, a slave to sin or a slave to God. I thought of another person uh, I don't know as I was reading and meditating on Romans 6 this, this week, a guy named... Uh, it's not the guy, yeah, you guys, it's not the guy on the left. You guys know that guy. Anybody know the guy on the right here? That's who I'm talking about. Tony Shea. Anybody know this guy? I didn't know about him. I never, never heard of his name before. So I'll tell you a little bit about him. As I read a lengthy article about his life some weeks ago, it was an incredibly uh, tragic article that I read. Um, Tony uh, Shea uh, was an incredibly uh, successful man as well. Uh, the upper uh, echelons of things. I'm going to pull something up here. Uh, he graduated from Harvard in 1995. He was an entrepreneur. He eventually became CEO of Zappos. You guys uh, know that. Uh, anybody ordered shoes from there? So he was the CEO of that company. He, he started a whole variety of companies, pioneered selling shoes as an online uh, retailer, Amazon eventually bought Zappos for $1.2 billion. How would you like to start something and somebody buys it for $1.2 billion? So he had a net worth of nearly a billion dollars. Mr. Shea spoke often. This is from the article that I read in the Wall Street Journal. Mr. Shea spoke often about partying as a central feature of his work and life. And his drinking increased after he retired and grappled with the isolation enforced by the pandemic those close to him said. He had problems prior, and they just got accelerated and bigger with the pandemic. He began experimenting with drugs, such as mushrooms and ecstasy, they said. That was only one component of increasingly extreme behavior, a long-standing fascination with fire intensified, friends said. A real estate agent who sold him a mansion in Park City, Utah, visited the house shortly after, estimated there were 1,000 lit candles in the home. Mr. Shea ran experiments on himself, limiting his sleep to four hours a day. He tried a 26-day diet, eating only foods that started with the letter A on the first day and progressing through the alphabet each day. I'm not going to recommend that. In Park City, he was surrounded by people who only told him yes, one of his close friends said. He ends, up, he ends up dying in part from his fascination with fire in a, in a mansion in Connecticut. He's actually in a shed, not even sure what was going on, and died in a fire in a shed on the property of a mansion in Connecticut. On the day before the fire from which he died, Tony Shea was making plans to check into a rehabilitation clinic in Hawaii. This is a guy 
who published books. This is a guy who was looked to as a leader in the business world and in reorganizing companies and how they're structured. If we look at Romans 6, and we're not afraid to use politically incorrect language like Paul wasn't in the first century, Tony Shea was, was someone who was a doulos, a slave to sin. He was trying to find his way desperately. He tried all kinds of spiritual things. His life ended tragically. Paul is writing Romans 6 to remind those first century Christians about the transition that they made from, from a journey where wherever they were going, in all different directions, they were slaves to sin and they made a transition to another master, to another king and became slaves of God. The solution is to see that freedom, even today, what our world describes as freedom, the kind of life that this guy was living for much of his life. I mean, he was incredibly celebrated, Tony Shea. I have not spent a lot of time in Vegas, but apparently he is just loved in Vegas. He helped revitalize Vegas, moved his company's headquarters to near Vegas. And he is looked up to and admired and thanked for the revitalization he did in the city of Las Vegas. All of the things that he did, some of them were good. Who was his master? The end of Romans 6 would say that his master was sin. It didn't look like it. He looked like a successful entrepreneur that, that, that should be giving TED Talks every, every few weeks and helping people understand how, how, how to make companies so healthy. To do what he did. The solution is to see that freedom is actually slavery. So, back to our text. I haven't gotten very far in my text. Where am I, church? Help me out here. Am I verse 17? Yeah, verse 17. Say, yeah, pick it up, Mike. Say, pick it up. Let's pick it up, and we'll, we'll finish this here. These are two examples that the Lord brought to my mind. So let's pick it up, and, and we'll uh, look at verses 17 through 19. Verse 17, but thanks be to God that though you used to be slaves to sin, he's talking to the Roman Christians in the first century, he's talking to us today who have made the transition from the realm of darkness to the realm of light, to the, from the realm of law to the realm of grace. Though you used to be slaves to sin, you wholeheartedly obeyed the form of teaching to which you were entrusted. You believed the gospel. Your master became Christ and not yourselves, not sin. Verse 18, you've been set free from sin. There's language that is politically correct today. You've been set free from sin. And have become slaves to righteousness. Languages that's not politically correct. Paul is emphasizing the single lordship of God. Becoming slaves to righteousness. Becoming slaves to Christ. Becoming slaves to God. This is where freedom is found paradoxically. Then he says, verse 19, which we've already looked at. I know this is kind of a hard analogy for you. But we weak humans, we need analogies to help us. Who are you going to be a slave to? 
Jumping down to the latter part of verse 19, just as you used to offer the parts of your body in slavery to impurity and to ever-increasing wickedness, so now offer them in slavery to righteousness leading to holiness. Does he care about our lives and what we look like and what we do? Yes. He wants us to love him and love neighbors. He wants us to follow his commands. We do this because we know it is the best way to live and that he created us and made us to live according to his ways. Not to burden us and weigh us down, but to show us how to live joyfully and with freedom. When Christ is our master, we are actually free. Verse 20, when you were slaves to sin, you were free from the control of righteousness. What benefit did you reap at that time from the things you are now ashamed of? Gosh, verse 21 makes me think of the conversation with that man in the rehab, rehab place not, not too far from here. What, what benefits did you reap from decade after decade of pursuing business, nothing wrong with pursuing business, but pursuing business all about yourself with Christ not as your master over business. He realized there's no benefit. It's empty. He's alone. He's afraid. But God's there ready for you to come across, even in a wheelchair, across that field, across the hospital room, and embrace you and forgive you. There are no limits to his forgiveness. It's not too late. What a pleasure to bring that news to someone. That's the good news we're called to give to our neighbors no matter what their situation. Verse 21. What benefit did you reap? Sorry, I already did that, right? Continuing in 21. Uh, those things result in death. They result in spiritual and physical death. Verse 22. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves to God, the benefit you reap leads to holiness. And the result is eternal life. And then verse 23, which is probably a verse many of you have memorized, maybe the one part of this chapter we're familiar with. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. I skipped this earlier. This is going back to verse 19. Moves just helping us understand why Paul's using this analogy of slavery. Paul's point would appear to be that human nature produces weakness and understanding that can be overcome in this life only by the use of imperfect analogies. Analogies help us understand things. You've used analogies when you're talking with friends. Paul's using an analogy of slavery, which was not a good thing in the first century, but it was something they were incredibly familiar with, and he's using that analogy. That's what he's getting at in verse 19. My third and final point, coming back. The solution here is to be a slave to God. It is the only way to true freedom. The world teaches this freedom is for you to do whatever you want, find your own way, be your own master. I am the master of my fate. Invictus. That is anti-Christ. That is anti-gospel. That is anti-Roman 6. You are not your own master. Christ is your master. If you think you are your own master, Romans 6 very boldly says you are a slave to sin. So as we wind up here, can boil this down to three questions and three answers. Who will you serve? 
Romans 6 is teaching you have two choices. It is not a false dichotomy. It is not a false choice. It is true. That sin can look really good if you are in charge of your own life instead of the Lord Jesus being in charge of your own life. Who will you serve? Sinner God, who is your master? What will be your outcome? Spiritual and physical death or spiritual and physical life forever in God's presence? Joining our brothers who used to sit in the back row right here, served our country in World War II. What will your outcome be? Death or life? And how do you obtain it? If sin is your master, you obtain it by wages. You choose it. You've chosen it. You've done it. But if eternal life and joy in this life is yours, it came by grace. And now we're full circle to this question. Shall we sin because we are not under law but under grace? Because there's no limits to our forgiveness? Of course not. We follow God's ways. He loves us. He knows what's best. We don't. So, the point of this passage again is to be a slave to God. It is the only way to true freedom. We'll close our time here in the sermon with a quote from Augustine. He says, a person who lives by faith owns the whole world's wealth. For though he may have nothing, he possesses all things if he but clings to you, the master of them all. God runs and rules and owns the universe. And if you make him the Lord of your life, he will provide a family, a literal family like Cornerstone, like Auburn Grace, like Elevation or Redemption. You will have a spiritual family and then you will have a family forever and ever upon death. And death is an entrance to gain instead of something to fear. We have everything we need when he is our master. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. We thank you for its clarity. We thank you for these two categories that are clearly articulated in the latter part of Romans 6, that every human being is going to have a master. Lord, we pray that anyone here who may be struggling, that even right now in their hearts, they would dedicate themselves to you as their master. And we rejoice that there's no limit on the number of times when we have failed you, when we have turned away, that you were there ready and waiting to forgive us and not only to welcome us, but to put rings on our finger, to, to put a robe around us and to embrace us. We thank you for our Lord who is gracious and merciful and full of forgiveness. We pray in his name. Amen.